Let me pray real quickly for us. Gracious Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for having us here. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that opens our hearts and our ears to what you have to say to us. We pray, Lord, that you come here with all your wisdom for us, that you come and, and meet us in every single place that each one of us needs you, with all your power, with all your strength, and to your glory in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles to Nahum, because we're going to be reading through some of the uh, scripture in there. So today we continue with our study of the Minor Prophets, the little book of Nahum. I'd say short, but not so sweet. (laughs) To my knowledge, neither the book or its author receive reference anywhere in the Bible. But despite the fact that that he's not widely known as a prophet, Nahum represents what we might think of as God's one other of God's prosecuting attorney because he is assigned to present a specific list of charges against the accused, and the accused are those who have broken God's law. Generally speaking, these accusations, we've seen them imposed against God's own people, brought in an attempt to correct their behavior and to restore them into relationship with him. Nahum, however, addresses not the failings of the Israelites, but of their deadly enemy. It is intended both as a judgment upon them and a reassurance to the people of Judah and Israel of how uh, how God loves them. Nahum is filled with the intense outpouring of God's rage against his enemies. So we're going to see God in a different way. And this rage is tempered only with the extraordinary love that he shows for his own. Yesterday morning I was a little bit tense when I started uh, teaching this because it had been very hard to prepare for this lesson. I don't know why harder than any other I had prepared. Um, I was telling Lynn earlier he kept throwing this outline out the window started with this, not that, and not that. So I asked everybody, how many of you have read the lesson or the scriptures? And I said, good, now we can go and break into small groups. (laughs) 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 I I don't know why it's been like that. And I don't know why I ended up with Naomi. And maybe Rose said, I said to Rose, give me whichever book, you know, when we volunteer. But, um, You know, I've prayed over this lesson, so let's go to it. The book of Nahum has been criticized by some as being as an excessive display of hatred. Nahum is a single focus book. It describes and reflects on the imminent destruction of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And I'm not going to go into any geography or any of that because we don't have much time, but just know that it was located in what today is northeastern Iraq. So that's where Nineveh was. As some commentaries say, what bothers many is that the book's vivid portrait of God's judgment of Nineveh lacks the sense of grace and compassion that balance the grimmest warnings given in other prophecies. But we have to remember that Nahum's message was not addressed 
to the citizens of Nineveh. He spoke to the oppressed people of Israel and Judah, who for over a century had suffered the brutal, brutal assaults of Assyrian armies. We don't see in the passage in the scripture how brutal these people were necessarily, but history tells us how brutal they were. The people of Israel and Judah had seen their homes destroyed, their crops burned, their wives and daughters raped, because this is what they did to the women of their enemies, and they used to dash the children against stone walls. So this is what they had had to go through. So the charges that we will see against the Assyrians, or the causes for the destruction of Nineveh in this book, among other things, are their open opposition to God, their decadence, how cruel they were, and their idolatry. In preparing for this lesson, I have been doing some reading on Assyrian ancient history, and I have to confess, I hadn't touched it since the sixth grade or thereabouts. I am not going to share today what I read of the evil atrocities committed by Assyrian kings and their armies as they are recorded in historical documents. If you want to read some of it, you can Google Ancient Records of Assyria and Babylonia by Daniel Lukenbills, and you can read some of the things. These kings themselves, personally, what they did to people, and then directed their armies to do this, the same, and they prided themselves of what they did. When I read some of these, I'm saying if you want to read it, go read it, but I don't recommend it. I thought I was going to have nightmares, so I stopped. I said, I don't have to know all of this. God has saved me from this. Why go there? If you read this, you might understand, however, a little better of Jonah's reluctance to go speak the good news to these people because he had been in the middle of it, and he knew how horrific and cruel and hyenas these people were. Just a glimpse. Ashurbanipal, who reigned Assyria between 669 and 623 BC, just a few years before Nineveh's final destruction in 612, was so egotistical that after committing with his own hands, I read what he did, a hyenas atrocity, he wrote, I am Ashurbanipal, the great king, the mighty king, king of the universe, king of Assyria. The great gods magnify my name. They made my rule powerful. And then another king, Esarhaddon, was even more boastful. He said, I am powerful, I am all powerful. I am a hero, I am gigantic, I am colossal, I am honored, I am magnified. I am without equal among all kings. The chosen one of Assur, Nabu, and Marduk. And these were his gods. And these were the people that were oppressing Israel, the people of God. That oppression took final form in 722 BC when they totally destroyed Samaria and took all of them, carried Israel into captivity. And this is history of the relationship between Assyria and Israel and Judah puts the book of Naomi in perspective for us. Lawrence Richards is a commentarist that sometimes I read. He, has, uh, he says in the Bible Reader's Companion, 
rather than an excessiveness of hatred. Like we mentioned at the beginning, that some people look at this uh, book as, I have come to understand Nahum as a celebration of just retribution. It is a cry of praise affirming the justice of a God who has judged his own people harshly for their evil sins and now shows himself to be fair by handing out even-handed judgment to their oppressors. Gross idolatry was practiced in Nineveh and throughout the Assyrian Empire, and their religion was Babylonian, but their god was Assur, and the king was the priest and the head of their religion. Now, before we get into the book, how would you feel if you were to receive a message, personal message, that started with, this is a message of burden regarding your doom. This is what an oracle means in the context of Nahum. As mentioned in the first verse of this book, God's oracle through Nahum basically rendered God's death sentence to Nineveh, to the whole reigning world superpower of Assyria. The same Nineveh with uh, to which God had sent the reluctant nonna, uh, Jonah. You remember you were talking about Nineveh again. God had sent him a hundred years before to speak, and many repented. But it seems that the spiritual revival that that message produced had flamed out, and Assyria had returned to its civil and brutal ways. Perhaps it seemed inevitable to them they probably felt they were going to conquer the whole world, including tiny Judea or Judah. But they didn't count, they didn't consider the power of the immortal Yahweh, the God of Israel. His patience just ran out. And he was about to render judgment on them. His wrath was going to be unleashed. Let's read Nahum 1, 1 through 8. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Nahum's first chapter focuses not on Nineveh, but on God. He describes Israel's jealous and avenging God. The jealousy here 
has to do with the deep emotional concern for the well-being of those for whom he cares. Right before we started, I share with um, Lynn and Tina that this horrific hate, uh, headache had come on me. And when Lynn was praying for me, she did pray. She did say, you are a jealous God and you are jealous for Christina, you know. And it really spoke to me, uh, you know, along with the lesson. And you know what? My head is not hurting, you know. So jealous because he loves us so much. He's jealous about his people. And he's avenging in retribution as an appropriate response to sin. And then the book pictures God as a warrior striding over the land, terrorizing his enemies and bringing relief to those who trust in him. Verses 9 through 11. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. This is when he introduces um, Nineveh, not until this point. Portraying them as plotting evil against the Lord. I believe it is said here that they are plotting against the Lord because they are plotting against the people of God. When someone is against us, really they are against the Lord. We have to remember that as his children. They are against him and he will fight for us just in the same way that he fought for the Israelites. And thank you, Lynn, for praying just that tonight. God will destroy this nation which has afflicted his people. Verses 12 and four through 14 say, Thus says the Lord, the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you, Nineveh. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. The destruction would be final. It says, no more shall your name be perpetuated and would be celebrated in Judah as a forerunner or indication of peace to come. Verse 15 says, behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly, utterly cut off. And Nahum begins the second section of his book with a warning to Nineveh. In verse 1, he says, The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. In this verse, we see that Nineveh's armory it was said to be of a uh, containing about 40 acres. Mm -hmm. Imagine that. 
contained all the weaponry that had made the Assyrian Empire great bow swords, spears, armor, chariots. But the prophet's call to arms is mocking here when he says, Man the rampers, watch the road, dress for battle, collect, collect all your strength. He's just mocking them. Whatever the Assyrians may do will be futile, for God has determined that the city will fall. Verse 2, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. They're going to be restored because of all their suffering. They were devastated by the massive Assyrian armies. Then the prophet uses four images or analogies to drive home the guilt of Nineveh. In 2.3.13, he calls he speaks of the city as a lion that terrorizes the neighborhood and is finally killed in the den where he took human prey to feed his cubs. I'm going to read verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. In verses 3, chapter 3, 1 through 6, Nineveh is depicted as a prostitute who enslaved others <coughs> by witchcraft. Verse 4 of chapter 3, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Then Nineveh is like the Egyptian city of Thebes, which dominated all the lands around her, but was destroyed by Assyria itself. Verses 8 through 10 of chapter 3. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart, a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. So it does speak here of what the Assyrians did to Thebes. For her honor men lots were cast and all her great men were bound in chains. And finally, in verses 12 to 19, we see Nineveh's forces are as numerous as the locusts who ravage the countryside, yet these swarms will disappear under the enemy assault. Verses 15 and 17 through 17. There will be the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply it like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. A locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. The city of Nineveh fell to the Babylonians. 
Medes and Scythians in August 612 BC. All of these three empires just went together against the Assyrians. As prophesied by Nahum, this destruction was final since Nineveh was never rebuilt. I googled uh, Nineveh to see some images and pictures and see what I could see about it. And you can do that. That, that wouldn't scare you. <laughs> and it was a grand city. You know, what drawings they have of it. It's beautiful. And that was then. And then they have pictures, images of today. It's just a little bit of rubble in the place where it used to be. It was never, ever rebuilt. Now, Hebrews 12 teaches us that when applied to his people, God's anger was imposed in order to restore Israel to himself. This anger was corrective in nature and reflective of the statement on, from Hebrews 12 that says God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. But it's not so with Nahum's prophecy. It doesn't entail a call to reconciliation, but a proclamation of impending and unavoidable destruction. And in its words, we catch a glimpse of God's all-powerful rage as he rebukes the sea, causes mountains to quake, hills to melt, and the earth to tremble at his presence as he takes vengeance upon his enemies. Have you ever been in the middle of a natural disaster? I have. In 1976, I was in Guatemala, and um, there was a horrific earthquake that killed about 60,000 people. And it came without warning, right? Well, there are little warnings here and there. You don't realize that there are warnings, but there are little warnings. It came at 4 in the morning. I will never forget this. You're, something wakes you up. And I think it must have been a little tremor, you know, that wakes you up. And you expect something. I remember what's coming, you know. And before the quake, before you felt it, you heard it. It was so scary. It was like a rolling, like the, I say, the earth being removed, and it rolls, and it rolls, and it rolls, and it builds up, and then explodes. And the window in my bedroom didn't have the curtains drawn, so I could see out. The sky was red before the quake because I had run and I jumped on top of my daughter's bed and I didn't know what was coming. You just knew something is coming. When I heard this tremendous, tremendous rumbling, but no quake and the sky's red, I expected the trumpet. I thought Jesus was coming. Well, what came was this horrific shaking. I was so disappointed. <laughs> but I was scared out of my wits. So much so that for over two hours I could not say one word. I couldn't, I couldn't, even if I wanted, I could not speak. And I'm just here with my daughter, and I was at my parents' house, and, I, and everyone, my mom screaming, everybody get out and do this and the other. And you don't even know it's an earthquake. You don't know. You just know something horrible is happening. And worse, 
when it comes. You know, all of that is the unleashed power of the Lord for a purpose, for a reason, to His glory. And let me tell you in another time, because we don't have time tonight, to tell you everything that happened to Guatemala after that. How the Lord worked in the heart of everybody in there. It was amazing. Really quick. At that point in Guatemala, maybe 5% of the Guatemala population was evangelical Christian. After the quake, it's 50-50. So that's just a little, you know, he chooses to call us in whichever way. Now, there were a few decades in between the prophecy and 6012. God still gave them a little time. We don't know what happened in there because it's not recorded in the scriptures. So two things we see uh, here. We receive a warning. God is a jealous God that he will defend his people filled with righteous wrath against his enemies and ready to punish the guilty. We read that he will not let it go. He will not have anything to do with sin and then there is a promise the Lord is good a refuge caring for those who trust in him is it hard for you to see God as such an avenging God to hear and read this raging with retribution to take revenge for the suffering of his people a lot of people say I don't want to read these books I don't want to read the Bible it's full of these full of hatred, it's full of uh, killing, it's full of massacres, it's avenging, revenging, what not. I recognize that this is hard to read and hear. For me, it's because it's hard to hold in tension God's grace and His justice. He's a just God. Hard for our unlimited, or I mean, for our limited understanding to grasp His unlimited character. It's very easier and safer to reduce him to a single dimension by resting on the assertion that God is love. And of course he is, but that's not all he is. I'm sure you know about a lot of people thinking uh, today that, you know, there is this concept that it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere in what you believe. And this concept goes on to submit that no religion is better than another. And in fact, all the roads lead to the same place. And this proposition relies heavily on the concept of God's unconditional love which is just one dimension of his character to be sure, but a truth that has been distorted to support the idea of universal salvation. In his book, God's Love Had the Infinite God Cares for His Children, Arsis Sproul says on this matter, it has become fashionable to preach superficially of God's unconditional love. It is certainly a pleasing message to hear and conforms to a certain political correctness. In our desire to communicate the sweetness of the gospel and the incredible depth of his love displayed at the cross, 
we indulge in exaggerated expression of the scope and extent of that love. If God's love is absolutely unconditional, why did Jesus have to die? Why did he call people to repent and to have faith in order to be saved? While it is apparent that in some sense God loves everyone, it is equally apparent that he sets forth clear conditions for that person to be saved. In his first public sermon, Peter delineates this. He said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And later, repent, be baptized in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus taught in Matthew 7:13 that wide is the gate and broad the road that leads to destruction. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few will find it. It doesn't appear that neither Peter or Jesus advocates the all roads theory. Nineveh tragically found that out, despite God's grace, twice. First Jonah and then all those decades in between the prophecy and the actual destruction. Despite his grace, despite declaring his desire that none should perish, Nineveh chose the white gate and the broad road and it reaped the consequences. So, what does it all mean for us here, today? Wrath and judgment, death and destruction. These are terrifying teachings for anybody, especially if you don't know Jesus. All these teachings have fallen out of favor in our enlightened culture. In fact, messages like these are considered very simple or simplistic and outdated, named fire and brimstone and even scared theology. And for sure, there have been several teachers that have employed this to manipulate people. But it doesn't matter how misused it has been. It does not render the topic unimportant. On the contrary, I think it is crucial to our broader understanding of God and crucial to our appreciation of the great salvation that is available to us. John the Baptist himself in John 3.36 said, Whoever rejects the Son will not see life. God's wrath remains on him. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord. And the Lord Jesus says this of himself in Matthew 25, 41, stating that upon his return to those on his left, he will say, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This represents but a few of God's warnings his attempts to awaken us to the truth of his wrath and the judgment that will befall those who reject his son and dishonor his glory. I think we cannot begin to savor the sweetness of the good news without comprehending the bitterness of the bad. And the lessons contained in Nahum facilitate that understanding. For quite frankly, I think we are all 
Ninevites. We cannot say what what was happened with the Ninevites. As Paul stated in referencing mankind in Romans 3.23, there is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is echoed in the, by the psalmist in Psalm 130 verse 3. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, O oh Lord, who could stand? And we know the answer. The answer is no one. Because it doesn't matter how big or small the sin, sin is sin. Whether it is a Syrian slaughter of other people, or my own pride, my arrogance, my lack of love, God will have no part of it. For what does light have to do with darkness? God despises sin, and his perfect justice demands punishment for it. Sin is sin. The result of this recognition, however, should not, it's not intended for us to, or to send us fleeing away from God in terror. But the intention is to draw us to him in repentance and in obedience. In one of his sermons on Hebrew 12, John Piper said, Fear may not awaken faith and love directly, but it may so shake us from our love affair with things that we can look into the eyes of the one who can. That one, capital O, the one who can shake us loose, the one that can awaken our faith and our love, that one is the unchanging and the unchangeable God portraying Nahum. It's the same God described in these words, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust him. He will restore the splendor of Jacob. A good God, a restorative, caring God, and yet one whose justice has to be carried out. And he was there at a place called Calvary over 2,000 years ago. It was on that cross that good God poured out his infinite fury. It was there that he unleashed his terrifying wrath upon an innocent man, crushing his own son that we might find forgiveness, eternal life, and refuge in him. Remember how at the beginning I pointed out that Nahum is filled with the intense outpouring of God's rage against his enemies, tempered only with the extraordinary lo uh, love for his son? The cross is the reminder of God's perfect justice, as it is the sign of his goodness, indicating how very far he was willing to go to receive us into his embrace to unleash all that upon Jesus. It is the assurance 
of his boundless care for those who will trust him and an invitation to be restored to that care. The message that Jonah delivered to Nineveh a century before, a message of grace and mercy and reconciliation, that's the same message that Jesus has given us. God so loved the world, in spite of its rebellion and injustice and cruelty, cruelty. He so loved, so desired to spare it of Nineveh's fate that he sent his one and only son to bear the brunt of his wrath that whoever trusts him, believes in him, will not perish, will not be exiled from his care, but will have and enjoy eternal life in his, in his presence. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the gospel truth and it's Nahum's lesson to us. Though we are more wicked and deserving of judgment than we could possibly imagine, at the same time we are more loved and more forgiven than we could possibly hope. Two questions for you today. If your trust resides in Jesus, then allow Nahum's words to serve as a catalyst for three things. One for deepening outpourings of worship. Two for a renewed commitment to boldly declare this great salvation to a dying world. And three for a zealous and radical attitude of love and service to his glory. My other questions is if you have not yet embraced Jesus and his loving invitation to put your trust in him for forgiveness of sin, redemption, and adoption into his kingdom, then allow Nahum's words to open your heart to the invitation and the promise so lovingly extended to you. I do not know every, everybody here. I know very few of you. But I feel compelled to pray that God may grant this truth to become the reality of everyone here and of every family represented. If you have questions about your salvation, please talk with your leader. Please talk to a friend that trusts Jesus. Talk to Rose. Come forth, talk to any of us here. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your word that is life and that is power. We thank you that you desire for us to come to you, to give our lives and to surrender everything. I pray that in the power of your spirit and in the holy name of Jesus, no one here goes untouched by this power of your word, by your grace and your mercy. That no one here will suffer the fate 
of Nineveh and the Assyrians. And I pray, Father, this will be true also for all their families. If anybody here, Father, has a spouse, a parent, a child, a grandchild, a sibling, not walking with you, I pray that you draw those to you, Father, to your glory. To your glory we pray and we thank you in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.